Today's episode of A Fool's Idea, the audio podcast, is sponsored in part by brilliant musical comedians with giant foofy hair. I want to share a little story with you before we get into the interview today. I had been working on setting up this interview for a few months. Reggie is insanely busy, mostly based in New York City, and is generally only in LA for gigs or shooting episodes of the brilliant IFC talk show with Scott Ackerman, Comedy Bang Bang. After finally negotiating an opening in his schedule with his management team, I got all the details in place. I was to meet him at his LA house at 8pm on a Wednesday. Finally, the day arrived and I trekked to his house, planning to get there a bit early in case I ran into trouble finding the location. I parked at the address at around 7.30 because traffic was good to me, and I decided to just hang out in the car listening to podcasts until 8pm. As the clock hit the hour, I got out, grabbed my bag of recording crap, and walked over to the gate. Trying my best not to look like a creepy stalker, I searched for some sort of doorbell, and there was nothing. I tugged on the gate, and it was locked. I looked for lights on the house, and it was totally dark. Slightly concerned that I somehow got the address wrong, and realizing that it had already gotten dark outside, I went back to my car to reassess the situation. The locals began their evening jogs while eyeball daggers attacked the annoying paparazzi-looking freak lurking around their famous neighbor's house. A half hour had passed since I was supposed to meet my bearded interview. The house was still dark and the natives were getting restless. I did the only thing I could do. I whipped out my smartphone and checked my email. Bam! Right there in my virtual mailbox rested an email from Reggie's manager telling me that he was running behind schedule because production for Comedy Bang Bang was going into overtime. As I waited another half hour or so, trying my best not to look like I was cast as a new Billy Rosewood on stakeout for Beverly Hills Cop 3D, a large swanky black sedan crept up beside me. As the tinted windows rolled down, a large tuft of hair popped out and I heard the disarming tone of Reggie's unmistakable voice say, Brian? I responded with anxious excitement, and he told me to grab my stuff and hop into his car, as we had to enter the house from another area. I jumped in, and we rolled on down the hill to an alley behind the house. I stepped out of the car, the big gate opened, and I realized that what I thought was a cute one-floor cottage house was in fact more like a three-story mansion, featuring a gazebo, hot tub, and Christmas lights. What I had initially seen was just the tip of the iceberg. While I stood next to the house, Reggie had already parked his car in the alley and was headed up the driveway. He arrived at a small back door, paused, and had a little trouble finding the right key for the door. We entered a tiny little efficiency apartment with clothes and comic books strewn about. It made me a little happy to notice that we shared much of the same reading interests. He quickly tossed his gear onto the sofa, jumped on the bed, and exclaimed, How do you want to do this? I unpacked my recording gadgets, plunked my ass on the floor next to him, and proceeded to interview this comedic genius while he comfortably relaxed upon his nest in the basement apartment of someone's eccentric mansion. Welcome to the Fool's Idea Audio Podcast, the show where you get to hear me awkwardly fumble my way through interviews with some of the most interesting artists, performers, physical comedians, teachers, and clowns from around the world. On the podcast today, we get cozy with the one and only Reggie Watts, the one-man band leader and hilarious sidekick from IFC's Comedy Bang Bang, as well as brilliant stand-up comedic performance artist and TED Talk guru. So strap on some huge hair and a magic beard, because this one's going to be a Bang Bang? Cloud is free. Cloud is life. Cloud is free. Cloud is life. 
five to five. Everybody, five to five on the side. All um, right, so uh, we're recording, and we're okay, hanging good. out with Reggie Watts today. All right. Oh, and just to let you know, I've got about like thirty. Is that okay? Is that okay? Uh, we got as much as you you got to okay. give me. Okay. Good. All right. Good. Just just so pacing wise or whatever, you know, if you if you have some crazy mazes that you like to spin and create. No, just kidding. Anyways, let's it's, just go. It's all about the path. I mean, <laughs> let's you, just you're, go. You're the you're the mad storyteller. <laughs> so, yeah. So I may be. I don't know. <laughs> Thanks. Okay. This is going away. So so first question is uh, yeah. You kind of have a ridiculous schedule that you keep. Yes. Um, you have 10,000 projects going on. How do you keep up with all of that? Um, uh, I don't know. You know, a great management team, really, <laughs> I guess, because I can't keep track of all that stuff. And um, they figure out ways to make it rock with the schedule. Um and yeah, they do a really great job. They're really efficient. They're really, you know, great at what they do. So yeah, without that, I don't think I could do it. I would still be doing just as much stuff. I'd just be fucking up a lot more. <laughs> so so let, let's let's get to it a little bit. So what is what's your origin story like? Where did where did you get the inspiration for comedy? Like what 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 did you want to be when you were a little kid? Just weave that narrative for us a little bit. <sighs> Well, I mean, I never really thought of myself as a comedian, um, but I loved comedy. And in high school, I did a little bit of acting in junior and in, uh, in elementary school stuff that I'd create. But and then in high school, I did a little bit of drama, which was cool, and gave me a sense of that. And then I think I tried doing stand up. I think I, I entered a stand up contest and won at the Sheridan Hotel won the contest for a stand-up thing and then I went on the road that one of the benefits of winning was that you got to go have like two or three gigs in other cities in Montana and so I was like this 17 year old you know or 16 year old comic cruising around like with these like weird bars and stuff in small towns in Montana doing that so I mean I got a taste of stand-up comedy I did a lot of physical comedy and what I did and um yeah that was kind of like the last time that I kind of officially did it until I decided to really focus on comedy again when I was about 32 and now I'm 41. So the time period between when you're 16 and running around doing comedy and, and you started playing with like a physicalized version of that. And then you got back to it in your thirties. What did you focus on? Was it more about the music at that point? In my 30s, it was, uh, I mean, I, I definitely was doing music, but I was trying to get back into speaking comedy, like saying things and, you know, I, you know, I did it, I dabbled here and there throughout that decade in the 90s, but like, um, I did some sketch comedy, a few bits of sketch comedy. Um, yeah, I mean, I tried my hand at getting, you know, dabbled a little bit, but I hung out with a lot of theater people, so I felt like I was kind of informed along the way and then when i when i decided to do comedy it was just me just improvising just rambling on about stupid shit that doesn't make sense and then like doing some weird music but just over time i started to develop it a lot more and you know it became what it is now so i mean did you did you consider yourself more of a musician and then you just sort of fell into the comedy bit or do you feel like you're more of a 
performer that was playing with music. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a better way of phrasing it. Yeah, definitely. I definitely was a performer, and I kind of identified myself through music in the 90s, for sure. But, you know, I feel like I was always a lover of comedy, and I loved... Um, I loved laugh, laughing and making people laugh and talking about stupid, ridiculous ideas with friends and just enjoying myself. And that was great. And I couldn't help but do that on stage, even when I was in different projects. So you, you, you probably don't remember, but I actually met you once in, in Brooklyn. Okay. Um, in the middle of the night at this weird Halloween party called the Danger Party. And yeah. you wouldn't recognize me because I was dressed up like a, like a French demon. Okay. I, I was with a, a group of friends, and we were doing this thing called Emperor Satan's Rococo Coach. <laughs> All right. <laughs> and, All uh, right. <laughs> and, and, uh, yeah. Oh, I remember that. I the danger was massive, yeah, huge, and yeah, it got yeah. crazy later. And, and there was, uh, we hung out a little bit in this weird back room where all the French demons were getting dressed in their uh -huh. costumes uh -huh. for this party. I saw the documentary about the comedy scene that you were a, a large part of in, in Brooklyn. I think it's Tell Your Friends. Tell Your Friends. That's I'm pretty cool. sure that's what it was, yeah. That's the one I saw, Tell Your Friends. Yeah. Was that like your your core group of, of comedy peers that you were uh, experimenting with and sort of developing your style of comedy back then? Well, that was, that was definitely part of the crew. I mean, there's a few circles. You know, when I first came to New York in, in 2003, it was all about Rafifi. And it was about, an, uh, yeah, a night called Invite Them Up. That was what I was confusing tell your friends with. But it's called Invite Them Up, and it was at Rafifi, which is in this like little bar on the east side, Lower East Side, and, or sorry, East Village. And that's where, you know, it was Eugene Merman and Bobby Tisdale's night that they threw. So that's where it started. And in that group, all sorts of circles came out of that. You know, one of the circles was um, Ian and uh, his his crew with uh, Victor Varnado for um, organizing this night. Well, I think Victor came in later, but um, I think so. Anyways, point is um, that that had been a show that had been kind of like Rafifi. It had its own like little bar that it put, performed in um, at Lolita and comedians would go down there and it was small and it was weird and just you'd see the most amazing people in the weirdest, smallest space. And so it was like kind of a parallel, but a little bit later than Rafifi. And then that developed its own thing, and then they created their own, you know, documentary about that circle that traveled through there. But similar circles that went through Rafifi. So all of the nights are all fairly connected, you know, at least by I would say maybe twenty to thirty comedians. When you move to New York and you're trying to break into the comedy scene, what you do is definitely not, you know, anything that other people are doing currently mm. in, in, in that world was it difficult for you to convince them to give you stage time or like or to work your way into that scene how did you or did you just kind of go up there say i got this bit and then <laughs> kind of blew their minds a bit that i think it was kind of more yeah i mean like somewhere somewhere kind of in between i mean i i eugene was it was a friend of um well, actually, I met Eugene through a friend that was from Brooklyn that was working as a guest performance artist with a modern dance group called 33 Fainting Spells. His name is Linus. And um, 
and he was working with 33 Fading Spells. I was active in the, the modern dance community, kind of supporting and writing music, stuff like that. And then uh, decided to have a benefit for 33 Fading, Fading Spells, and that my band paid for it, or played, played and gave all the proceeds to them. And then that's where I met Lennis. And then Lennis was like, my friend Eugene throws a comedy night. And I was telling him about Stella that I'd been watching. And it's just so fucking funny. And then he's like, yeah, well, you know, Eugene's friend with all the friends with all those guys. And he has a night with Bobby Tisdale. And then when then t- Stella just happened to be touring through the Northwest at like maybe a month later. Um, and then he's like, yeah, well, Eugene's going to be here. So I'll introduce you to him. And then... You know, just running into Eugene at the comedy night and him going, hey, this is Reggie, if he wants to come, you know, he wants to, does this thing, maybe he could perform at your thing. And Eugene was like, yeah, sure, cool. And then I then I got a gig that got me writing with a band in New York. And just, all, everything just totally random, but like opening up like channels to like kind of get to someplace. And then when I went to New York to write with this band on a spare time, at nights I'd go to Rafifi, I'd do invite them up. And people just kind of liked it right away. It was like a bunch of weirdos. It reminded me of being in high school again, in drama. It was the same <laughs> same people, same kinds of people, again. Kind of like drama nerds, um, comedy comedy heads, um, you know, of all walks and sorts, you know, and backgrounds. And, uh, yeah, it was great. I think everybody just accepted everybody. It was great. It was a beautiful scene. So, So how did you... How did you figure out that you could do what you do? Like the the kind of music that you create with these vocal compositions with that sort of, you know, lightning fast improvisational lyricism and, and, and vocalization. Like that's a pretty unique thing. I mean, there's a lot of beatboxers out there. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, like what you do is definitely sort of a different take on the music creation. Like when did you figure that was a thing that you could do? Well, I mean, I'd, I'd been doing loop stuff uh, on the Line 6 DL4 since probably 1998, I think, when I was in a band in Seattle. Um, this, this guy created a project. His name's Wayne Horvitz, and it was called the Wayne Horvitz 4 Plus 1 Ensemble. And it was myself, a guy named Tucker Martin, whose father is like a big country writer now in Nashville. Um, and never met his dad, but he's ended up doing this amazing audio kind of live effect processing multi-channel kind of um like yeah like reprocessing live sound through speakers so he would route instruments acoustic instruments through his gear and then he would affect it and then send it back out uh, uh through uh, studio speakers so to match relative uh, instrument volumes so essentially it was a chamber group but it did have an electric component to it, but the elect- but the volume of that component was only as loud as the loudest acoustic instrument could go. So in that in that ensemble, I was using like a tape loop thing that, and that was going to be fragile because we were going on a, uh, uh, a European tour. And so uh, Tucker had mentioned I heard about this effect pedal that emulates delay pedals, and was like sure. Let's check it out. We went to Guitar Center together, and we like checked him out. And it was like, this is perfect. This is exactly what we need. And so he got one. I got one. Um, and, uh, yeah, we took him on tour. And I started using it as a delay pedal. And then I found out it had a looping function on it. And I started figuring out how to do loops. And I'd seen people loop before. But, um, you know, I was just doing it my way. And then I started using it as a scratch pad with my bands to kind of, like, you know, throw down an idea and just have it looping so that they could learn it. Um 
to uh, using the effects, you know, for lifetime manipulation or live real time manipulation for live performances. And then it started turning into me doing it at weird parties and gigs where I was just using that and like singing or like doing weird shit. And yeah, and it just was kind of this evolution of me discovering the instrument. And, you know, so that's that's where that came from. The multi-track thing, which is more more like live production, uh-huh. um, which I guess is a, a style of performance is called live production. Um Guys like Tim Exile and Beardy Man, those types of guys, or um, um, dub effects. But uh, so that's sort of like building your composition live, yeah, in the moment, as, yeah, as it's happening, yeah. And it's also, yeah, and it and it can be either like performing, creating loops live, or it could be running sequences mm-hmm. of stuff, you know, or Ableton Live or whatever, yeah. and turning things on and off and affecting stuff. So it's like live production. So um, a lot of ambient most ambient bands that you see that's like all live production they're just throwing in really weird subtle sounds you can't even tell what's happening but it's like swirling around you it's all like live production shit but i got i ran into the the electro harmonics 2880 which is a four track looping machine and then that kind of changed things because now i was like able to record four tracks stereo pan each track control the the volume level of each track but then also in line, I would put the line six before it. So the line six still had all the delay effects. And then I also had sampling on the line six. So it's kind of like a, a non-synchronized sampler. So I had essentially five tracks. And then, uh, yeah, and then that changed things. I could like, you know, drop things out, put them in, stereo pan it, you know, add effects, don't add effects. So that's that's where that kind of came into being. That would have been probably about like six years ago or something like that. And, and and you've just kind of pushed that into your comedy like pretty crazy. Yeah, I mean it's it's changed a lot because in the beginning it was just me and the line six. So I did bits and gags um, and kind of rambled on about things. But then I started getting better at speaking about ideas fluidly and trying to edit myself, making sure that I'm not um, falling into too many comfortable crutches you know and the way that i do things live and so just monitoring that making sure that it's always fresh as fresh as i can make it and yeah and then incorporating and then once like the talking got stronger like kind of my seminar style way of speaking or it really depends it can be a character it could be a scene it could be um, me talking to a friend as though the audience is I one mean, person. You know? Have you had a lot of uh, training in, in, in performance training uh, of that caliber, of that level in improv? No, Or is no. this all just learned from doing? It's learned from doing, for sure. Because I didn't, I didn't, I wasn't really a big, I mean, I did, I loved improvising in music. Musically, I always loved improvising. So, you know, I I did shitloads and shitloads of improvisation musically, but it's the same it's the same shit for like me being on stage solo, whether I'm talking, or singing, or yeah, whether I'm talking or singing or moving around. Um, those are all kind of like a part of the same thing in a way. Like it, I never viewed it as like, well, now I need training in movement. Because now, you know, I've done enough, I feel like I've rehearsed enough 
um, improvisationally with music. Now I need to figure out how to do that with acting, or now I need to do that with movement. Or it's like I kind of always viewed improvisation as an as an elemental perspective rather than uh, specific skill sets and different with different tools. Right, so right. that's why I think it it. I wasn't like awesome when I started at all. Like I was really clumsy when I'd hear back like old footage of me talking. I'd be like, "What the fuck? Oh, that's such a you're you relying on that. Oh, that's terrible." You know. Um, so there's been a huge evolution. I mean, do you, do you get any flack from uh, you, you? You play with a lot of people that you know spent years in like Second City and Groundlings and like all mm-hmm. this improv training and stuff like that. Do you get flack from people that are just like, dude? You know, we did all this stuff, and and you just you can do it without spending all this money on classes. Yeah, I, I mean, mean has well, it, has it gotten to that point? Well, I think for me, it's like I I was I you know I I really respect the people that come from those improv scenes and they create improv groups and sketch groups and you know and the, that's like that's their way in you know um, to you know, being in this place where there's like more opportunity. But like, I think, um, I'm afraid of that style. I remember going to the pit once and deciding to try to be in a scene, an improv scene. And I did so terribly because I was so terrified of getting the rules wrong. (laughs) Because I was, because I was too, I was too aware that there were rules, even though it was improvisation, there's still rules. So for me, that's not improvisation. Right, yeah. Because there's still structure to it and there's still rules to it. And not to say that what I do is unstructured, it's but it's definitely anything can happen. There are no rules. So it's more like how music is. It's it's more like and that's where the Well, the, aren't yeah. there some I mean in 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 uh traditional like jazz improvisation, aren't there actual structured rules for of that as well? Of course. But I mean those are like um but then there was free jazz, which had yeah. no rules at all. So, I'm more of like a free jazz kind of a cat. Like I, I like I like no structure, but it's more likely to have to come from that mindset from music than it is from right. comedy necessarily. Because in music, you know, we jam all the time, and uh, you know, no one has to know anything. Someone just starts on something, and you just you know start adding shit, and then it becomes something. Okay. But there's really no rule. I mean, the rule I guess would be the rhythm. Maybe, or if it's free, there's no rules, there's right. no rhythm, then it's whatever, whatever, whatever. But I guess what I'm saying is that so when I'm on stage, for me, it works for me because I just translate it. I just carry it from music to what I'm doing, talking, because it's all texture, timing, tonality. It's just you know, essentially everything is music, anyways. You know. Uh, let, let me just ask you this straight up: Have you ever? Have you ever considered yourself to be a clown? Oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, for yeah. sure. Definitely, definitely. I don't, I wouldn't necessarily come out and say, guys, I'm a clown. But, but I do, I do like feel that ambiently. Like that, I do feel that. That's sort of a world that you're very aware of that you're playing in and yeah like to to a degree it's more the silliness it's more the silliness and the um i mean yeah the absurdity a lot of great clowns through history are also musicians i mean there's there's oh yeah a very big parallel with that you know Uh, like grok is this extraordinarily famous german 
clown from way back in the day, and he was a you know a massively accomplished violin player. Oh wow, <laughs> crazy! Um, I definitely think that in in the in the comedy that you do, there's uh, there's this physicalized, you know, nonverbal way that you play. Like in, in some of the shows I've seen, you do you know five minutes just plugging your equipment in and it's hilarious mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know and it's and it's very uh rooted in like slapstick and and physical miming mm-hmm. a lot of yeah and, yeah, yeah and is that something that you just that that's the kind of humor that spoke to you and you just sort of began playing in that world i mean you've had no like theater training in that world you've just no. sort of taken to it yeah, Naturally. it's yeah, just kind of like acting it out, you know, like kind of absorbing it, you know, like I, I always feel like if I was like an X Men, I would be someone like Rogue, uh-huh. where I would I would absorb things and be able to use their those powers, you know, like for a little while, and and that's kind of what I do. I kind of absorb things. So like when I see, you know, like I remember in uh, the mid '90s, a friend of mine was dating a girl who's. Uh, whose little sister who was who was dating the lead clown in Cirque du Soleil, this show, Saltimbanco. So, and this is in Seattle. So I went there and I watched all these clowns and these physical performers and the way they would move. And then I also hung around a lot of modern dancers. So their ability to move through space and choreography. And I've always been interested in dancing and movement, physical movement. And in breakdancing, there's a lot of miming, especially like pop locking or whatever, when people are acting like walls, you know, and moving, you know. That was actually a part of, so there's miming involved in breakdancing, there's breakdancing, robot, you know, that kind of shit. Then there's like modern dance and its movement, vocabulary, and like, so if you're interested in movement in general, you know, or seeing like a classic clown bit or a mime bit, um, and you kind of internalize it like there's something about it that gets into your DNA and you can kind of mimic it and so and then through mimicking then sometimes it becomes something that you can kind of become proficient in to a certain degree but certainly not like comparable to like a to a master in any sense but it gives enough of the idea that it transports you know it's more it's more about transporting people to the idea of what you're representing instead of being it being technically perfect well I mean it's you know, I I think you're passionate enough about what you're doing that it it definitely reads and through the performance that it doesn't you know, like it's just sort of a natural state of being. Uh, mm-hmm. Like I, I'm I'm wondering how much, you know, your your hair and beard are are quite eccentric to the uh, your average person. Mm-hmm. Um, how much of that is just is who you are and like you've always had this style and how much of it is more of a, a crafted character that you uh, created yourself to be yeah i mean i don't know how much of a crafted character it is i wish that i had planned like way in the past and like, okay okay <laughs> this is what i'm thinking full beard we'll we'll decide on like uh, bigger hair larger hair i'm thinking full beard large hair this general shape no but i mean it no. I mean, I've definitely liked weird hair growing up. I was a big fan of new wave music, so <laughs> I used to shave half my head, you know, and then straighten my hair and have it, like, all combed down on one side. 
you know, basically the same shit that Skrillex is rocking now. Nice. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, or the lead singer of Bow Wow Wow from that famous c- cover of her being naked, holding, huddled up to her knees with half of her head shaved. Beautiful. But, um, so, weird hair I've always been a fan of. And then rock and roll music is full of, you know, cats with big hair, weird hair, you know. And I just liked the idea of growing it out, so I just never... And it was also a lazy man's way of doing shit. And then I shaved <laughs> for a long time, and then finally one day I was like, I'm kind of la- I'm feeling kind of lazy, I'm not going to shave anymore. And I just stopped shaving, and then I just grew a beard. And I was like, eh, I guess I'll keep it. So have you ever had what somebody would call a, a normal job? Have you ever had to keep... Like a, a normal job kind of thing. Yeah, I've had a couple. I worked at a movie theater in Seattle when I was like 22, 23, or like a year and a half or something like that. I worked at a health food store for about two and a half years. That's about it. What would you consider yourself still uh, to be a struggling artist, or do you think you've made it to a point where you're comfortable? Um, I feel like things are definitely cruising along. But I also, um, yeah, but I also, I, ne- I don't feel completely comfortable. Like, like, I know, I mean, like, if something happened and I just lost, you know, people were like, we're not going to pay to see you anymore. Like, something like that. Like, if that happened, I'd be, I think I'd be okay. I think I'd be all right with it. It would suck. I'd have to get, i have to totally get adjusted but i've spent more of my life that way than than this way in the last four or whatever years so um i like it i enjoy it i understand it you know the 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 way that i can live now is a really exciting way for me to figure out how to like do more shit with you know but um that's really all it means to me it's like yeah it's a little bit more comfortable but it also means oh now i can try some shit I'm gonna like figure some shit out. So describe your your average week. Like, what's what's a week in the life of Reggie Watts? Well, I mean, sometimes they change. Well, it changes drastically. But uh, I mean, these last few months, it's been, you know, do comedy, film comedy, bang bang, um, Monday through Friday. Usually, call times are anywhere between seven a.m. to nine thirty a.m. You know, but you're also touring and and well, recording yeah. videos for Jash. Yes. And collaborating on the those scales. Uh, yeah. Playing shows pretty regularly, nonstop. Yeah. Like, yeah. Sneak it in. You said that, that's all under under the radar. Well, I mean, it's it's all cleared <laughs> with comedy bang bang. Sure, like, sure. It's all it's all you know above boards, but it's just. Yeah, I mean, there's like sometimes I'll do a festival and bang 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 was cool enough to say, okay, we can carve that that the time out so i go do this weird festival somewhere you know and then i fly back and then we film again for a little bit and then like on the weekend i might have to do an internet commercial or and then i'll then i'll have to like do a track and figure something out for someone's project or you know there's always like little things flying around that i'm that i'm doing um and that's kind of the way it happens you know but how how did you get the gig to pretty much be like the guy that comedy shows go to to create like theme songs <laughs> <laughs> i don't i think it was just because i was a comedian in comedic circles that knew how to write music really quickly 
So people were like, you know, I mean, like Kristen Shaw asked me to do Penelope, Princess of Pets, and I did that theme, and I, you know, did it on my shitty computer. It's, it sounds <laughs> terrible, and uh, and they used it. They were like, okay, cool, and uh, I think that having that, and then people hearing of that, and then someone else going like, hey, could you do a theme song to my my podcast? And I'd be like, sure. Because it only takes me a second to do it. You yeah. know, it's just however long it took me to perform it is that's how long it took to make it. So and then it just sticks. So like, yeah, like your like comedy death ray and yeah, like, comedy death ray, comedy bang bang. Um, like like were were you just being interviewed on the podcast and they asked you to improvise something and then that stuck or did, uh, did comedy they... bang bang? Uh, I think there was a theme song voting or something like that. I made like two theme songs. There was an episode. I think it was Death Ray at that point. It might have been Death Ray. Uh-huh. I think it was Death Ray. And then I did Comedy Death Ray, and they... Yeah, and then they had fans write in, like, is it this one or this one do you like better? And then they chose this other one. and So that became the theme, and then I had to change to Bang Bang, and so then they asked me to do, you know, a theme for that version, and so then I did Bang Bang, and that's when Bang Bang turned into what you hear on the podcast. And then when we got the TV show, then I went in with... Uh, my friend Tim Young and we spruced it up, put real horns on there, and like made it nicer, uh, more hi-fi. Has there ever been a moment in your career, your creative life, where where like a light bulb just went off, and uh-huh. and all of a sudden you you knew something that you didn't before, and and you you knew exactly what you needed to do in order to accomplish what your creative goal was? Um, yeah, I mean it happens. I, I mean. Yeah, I mean it happens in stages, I suppose. But there are, you know, there are moments where. I mean, have you ever been on stage uh-huh. and, for example, like uh, something fucked up, like and I, something just went completely wrong, uh-huh. and you embraced it in the moment, mm-hmm. and that just stuck, and that became something that you you felt was part of what you are and what you do. Oh, sure. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, things happen. I mean, I remember once having a cordless mic and deciding to walk off stage, you know, and then walked off stage and then I just like kept going, you know, out the doors and around the theater. And, and I just thought that was so funny because I just kept going, you know, I used to do it like announce myself, you know, from the sides and, but then just kind of kept going with that and just like would deliver like a shitload of exposition while I was like people hadn't even seen me yet you know that type of shit like or yeah or something falls over and I'm like oh that's funny when that falls over and then you know fucking around with that again in the future at some point or you know yeah that happens all the time little weird things accidents and you just kind of make note of them and keep them or you know they slowly get infused whatever over time so so what's your biggest uh, inspiration for doing what you do uh biggest inspiration is is really just being able to i don't know it's it's just allowing myself to get my ideas that i want that i have in my head out into the world and you know to try them out so it's i'm always i I guess the inspiration is to be alive and to uh perpetually want to create um and dismantle things so tell us a little bit about comedy bang bang like what 
what uh what that's like when you're when you're making what what that show is about for you like what your character is yeah i mean the character is is essentially it's just a kind of a heightened version of myself like a slightly more cartoonish version of myself and uh yeah i play like the paul schaefer meets andy richter of the show and mainly i i stand around i play people on and off i ask dumb questions and then i'm in sketches did did you ever imagine five years ago that you would be doing something like that no not at all I mean, it's weird. It's just kind of like it's a TV show, but it's like I never, never thought of it as like, oh, it's a TV show. Like it's more like just a show that I work, like I record, you know. And then people are like, oh yeah, that's really great, you know. And I'm like, oh, it's on TV. So like I, I don't. So it's kind of like a thing you do with your friends. Yeah. And and it doesn't even register yet that people. You might have like a huge fan base for this thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It feels like more like something. It's like my friend's project, who um, who's a badass, and I'm like I'm on the show and it's dope, and I get to do my own thing. But uh, sometimes it feels like work, definitely. But <laughs> sometimes it does feel like work. But but yeah, usually the general feeling of it is that I'm not really thinking of it as. Oh, this is a television show that we're making. It, it's more like we're making this show that you know that you can see on a computer screen or any screen, really. Um, but because to me, I, I just don't watch TV, so I don't know. I don't have that association to TV anymore. I just see them as like experiences that you can see on different sized screens. So with uh, with with Josh, um, how did that like? The, 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 the experiments that you're doing with Jash seem to be, you know, a little different than what you, you, like the documentary series that you're doing with yourself on tour. Yeah. The, these are a little bit different than some of the stuff that you've done in the past. How did, they, how did you come up with the, those projects? Well, I mean, the documentary thing was really, really my friend Vikram's idea. Um, Vikram Gandhi is a kind of a document I guess he's a documentary filmmaker but he released a, a film recently that was really amazing called Kumari and uh, I met him through a friend we hit it off and then I kind of talked a little bit about documentary stuff with him and he was talking to me about it and then Josh was around and he wanted to just show up and film stuff anyways to kind of create a a trailer on spec or just like this little piece of the idea of what it would be like and then, uh, and then I thought, well, this would be good for Josh. So, you know, let's try that. And then Josh was down. And then we, he just shot me a bunch and, um, behind, you know, stage. And he's really, really great and non-invasive and kind of ghostly. Gets his way around. He can negotiate his way into things. So he really kind of stays out of the way. It's, re- it's really good at it. And then, yeah, that's that. So that was kind of like him kind of inquiring and then me going like, oh, maybe we could do it with this. That was kind of the extent of it. And then um, there's going to be a thing released soon on Jash, which will be on Monday, and that'll be really fun. It's kind of what I call mimicry. Um, and then uh, and that's just an idea of me. I just like the idea of recreating things. Um, and then So what, are you going to be like recreating memes? Yeah, sometimes, maybe. Okay. One so far. But I don't, I don't know if I'll do more than that. But I do like recreating things. 
but yeah so we'll see but that one's just kind of that i have a the music videos are kind of things i would have done what people would expect me to do um and i love doing them but i also am going to be doing this improv project which is something um and it's going to be filmic narrative uh episodic and uh i'm not really i'm not playing music in it i'm just acting in it so um so so you're going to be completely improvised acting yeah yeah exactly uh yeah i guess you're pretty excited uh, about the challenge of that oh like, yeah have you done well, anything been, like that before well, i've been wanting to do it forever and been wanting to design different ways of improv- improvising and also designing different methods of production so reducing the amount of time it takes between takes um not worrying about continuity and things like that like just just keep that flow of actors being in an alternate reality acting as though this is the reality that they're in that's it you know so i think i think partly where uh what you do is a little bit different than a uh, a straight stand up is your ability as a, a natural storyteller and it like like whether it be song you know cuz you're not mm-hmm. just dishing out jokes mm-hmm. like every everything you do seems to have like a greater narrative behind it or to it like e- e- even in your TED talk when mm-hmm. it sounds like you're giving you know the world's greatest you know speech to mm-hmm educate the world yet nothing actually makes any sense <laughs> like there's a story in that you know like there, mm-hmm. <laughs> there's like at least you feel like there's a yeah, story right in right that. right exactly like yeah. uh, like we're, like where where did that uh when you were going to ted and like did you know ahead of time that's what you were going to create like ha- have you rehearsed that no. kind of speech before no or or was that you're you're sitting in this audience it's like where the world's smartest minds lecture and 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 give talks on their great ideas and, and how did you go into the thing that you like and and honestly I love the fact that the music portion of that was so small compared to essentially oh, yeah. the gibberish portion yes right yeah you know because right. i'm sure the audience is waiting for the music stuff they're like oh it's reggie watts so we're gonna hear <laughs> and you like it, it definitely made your music almost like the punchline to this joke. yeah joke. right right yeah how did you decide that you're that's what you're gonna make at that time well i mean i'd done things like that before like through pop tech and a couple other like tedx's you know and even design in Daba in South Africa. So I'd done like these kind of um, convention style art audiences, uh-huh. and I really enjoy it because I, wa- I love watching the speakers because I, I like seeing how people speak differently and uh, about, you know, things that they're researching or things that they've been designing or things that, you know, when they're giving a presentation about things that they're working on. It's a really cool language. So a lot of it. Yeah, so I'm imitating a lot of that style of speaking. And then, uh, so I just knew that if I watched the show, you know, watched everything that I could until it was time for me to perform, that that would give me all the stuff that I would need, you know. So I listened, you know, to the physicist and who gave us uh, a talk in the morning about 
stars expanding outward and that eventually that all we'll see is just if we were able to live long enough all we would see is nothingness around us there would be no starlight anymore and uh and that idea so like using that as part of the thing and then you know it's just some concepts that i thought of you know whatever it's just i just threw in kind of everything and i like the idea of starting in a weird language because it feels kind of tedian i guess to do that but i don't know i didn't really i didn't really plan on anything i just kind of went up there and hoped for the best mostly. so so where do you where do your characters and languages and the you know and in, in, in the bizarre accents that you do come from like are they, they're just floating around in your imagination <laughs> or have you had like like all these massive amounts of life experience that just sort of inform all that I think it's more that than anything it's also just practicing dumbass voices or like thinking <laughs> do you sit in the, your room in front of the mirror a lot making voices not in the mirror I definitely just I'm just drifting around you know all day like you know in my you know if I'm in the car or I'm at home or even when there's people around I'm always doing weird voices and strange strange sound effects and you know beatboxes and like little you know it just I can't help it I just I'm always doing that and thinking about things like that so so I'm always like kind of ambiently pra practicing and uh, but I just don't sit down and and practice necessarily I don't really like to practice one thing that I want to get at because I I haven't had on the on this on this project I haven't had any interviews with any other uh, like black American clowns or funny people <laughs> in any way and I'm wondering if you have any any thoughts as to why it seems like there's not as many physical comedians or, or uh, you know, black clowns mm -hmm. out there in the world. Uh, there are some. There's like Universal Circus, and they have a, a clown that is really hard to access. Like he doesn't really have any presence outside that circus. There's like a handful of black performers in Cirque. Mm -hmm. that are that play clown characters i mean there's mm -hmm. a lot of acrobats right 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 um yeah but forms. as as far as like clown characters and and people that you know consider themselves yeah. that kind of comedian. i think it's a too cool for school thing a little bit too it's like like it's not cool you know what i mean like that's not the, cool to be silly yeah i mean like that i'm not saying i'm not saying that but i'm saying that right. that's a perspective like there's like well I can appreciate a stand-up comedian. I can ex I can appreciate a stand-up comedian that does a, that walks around as a super physical and interacts with things. But when you cross the line over into like clown, it's like especially in the black community, it'd be like yeah, like you were saying earlier, like a clown is a derogatory thing. It's like look at this, this guy's a joke. He's a clown. There are also a lot of uh, I think like birthday party clowns that are, sure. are black because I think in the black communities there's a lot of clowning still in, in in the birthday party world probably more so than in in other communities okay. in the u.s uh because of the you know the the rise and the crunk and oh right so sure the, sure there that that aspect of things you know there are people that go to parties and teach dancing as clown you know right um well i guess yeah the crunk thing yeah but it's weird it's very hardcore though 
Yeah, yeah. So I mean, it has to like be balanced out with that. <laughs> you know what I mean? I, I I wonder if it has anything to do with the the face painting and and white face, black face kind of thing. Maybe going, like because uh, I I I thought about that. I mean, there was a uh, I I'm blanking on the name, but I was listening to uh, uh, Mark Maron uh-huh. interview the guy from uh, Good Times. Oh. The guy who played J.J. Walker? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Forget that he, guy's name. He was, he was interviewing him, and they got into a discussion of like the the older black comedy world and how there was this one particular comedian that performed in, in blackface. Oh, he did, yeah. And w- wouldn't perform out of blackface, and people like gave him a lot of shit in the black community for performing. Oh, right. But, he like, was, but that was with, his clown with character. the sort of minstrel show kind of yeah, sure. vibe, and I'm you know I wonder if that has a, something to do with the fact that black comedians don't embrace that aspect of comedy. That cer- that certainly could be a factor for sure. I mean, yeah, for me I was very far away from that, so I I didn't have an awareness of that. But uh, but but I imagine that definitely could be a factor. Of course, I mean. Yeah, and there's kind of a reinforced thing about it, you know. Who knows? I mean, also sometimes just communities produce different styles, you know. It's it's like like the like there's not that many Asian comics, you know, really that are like really like crushing it. It's like less than ten. Right, right, right. So that you see like in television shows, in movies, there seems to be a lot more South Asian. Yeah, there's a there's a lot of South Asian. There's not really any Japanese cats. It's just it's just weird. It's like I just think different cultures breed different forms or like tendencies. I would say strong tendencies towards different you know certain types of humor. And then of course there's going to be outliers and there'll be like outsiders and there'll be you know variants and anomalies and all of those things. But well, I mean, what's 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 interesting? I mean, it goes like the the clowning history goes goes like really really far back to the you know native american cultures and african tribes yeah have, right. have forms of fools and tricksters and yeah you know um when i was in china i actually it took a while because when i was uh i was in china for a month or so and i was trying to find you know clowning in china yeah and uh it didn't the, the word didn't translate everybody everybody thought i was just talking about a derogatory term Oh, okay. And uh, until I found like this statue of a Buddha that resembled what I thought a clown would look like. Yeah, yeah, right. And uh, I was like, w- "Where is this?" You know. And uh, eventually, like, I found these like street performers in Hangzhou, China, oh. that were like really awesome, cool, traditional street performing Chinese clowns. Oh wow! I'm like, holy shit! Like, it's it it's here. It's there. It just called something completely different. You know, right. the word doesn't translate. Right. But like it's like like that kind of humor developed in almost every and in, in pretty much every culture and every religion around the world simultaneously but completely separate. Yeah, right. Right, right, right. Which is partly what I find fascinating about it. I th- I think there's some sort of natural human instinct to to do that at least to ha- for some people in every culture to do that you know sort of like your journey into comedy 
was completely natural you know like yeah like it wasn't something that you woke up one day and you're like i'm going to train <laughs> a thousand hours <laughs> to, right, right. to master this art form that right. i'm doing it's just yeah, right something you love doing and it happened yeah right exactly yeah and yeah. I, like there, the, those are oftentimes the, the most embraced people of that culture, you know, and and you're sort of carrying that torch in in pop culture right now, and you know I, I find that completely fat like interesting and and fascinating because I think a lot of clowns around the world look at you and your performance and consider you to be part of their tribe. <laughs> but I think you're also playing in a tribe that wouldn't even consider that, uh, you know, yeah, I know, the clowns of the world. So, like, of you're course. writing this line, and I think it's quite fascinating. Yeah, I'm, try- I'm, I'm trying. <laughs> <laughs> so, what kind of stuff do you have uh, coming up uh, in, in the future of, yeah, well, this probably is going to go up in a couple of months months okay cool uh, so so okay you know what's the future of reggie watts yeah larger gonna future. be yeah um i think the you know larger future is definitely yeah making more things making my own things a lot more videos um music things of that nature creating things more on my terms i suppose like more and more like really want to kind of essentially create an art factory you know to just produce various forms of art different mediums of art but i'll be kind of in control of the scheduling and um the is pace this, of it and is this like a, a a factory where you want to inspire other people to start working on things or are these things that are going to be focused around projects that you're creating uh, mostly around things that i'd be creating like just like oh i have an idea for something um let's get together a team and then we just kind of like you know uh you know, my management, uh, whoever's helping me, puts together, assembles a team for a specific type of idea, whether it's a filmed idea, or whether it's a um, an audio thing, or whether it's um, uh, even something just like more just an experimental test of a camera technique or something like that. Um, whatever those things are, just just to like be cranking it out, putting stuff together, making stuff just constantly making stuff and experimenting, you know, stuff. And um, that's kind of the main goal, you know, to end based it out of New York, where I am, where I live. So spend more time in New York, live in New York, make shit, awesome shit in New York, and then travel once in a while to do some gigs, you know, here and there, but, like, not make that the main, main absolute thing, you know. So, uh, just uh, one last yeah. question. Yeah, yeah. Um, who do you consider right now in in in, in popular comedy? Uh, who would you consider part of the the clown tribe? Who would you consider other clowns that you might think would be cool to interview and explore into this conversation? Well, I definitely think Josh Fadum. He's a good guy to check out for sure. Um, I think that I think Kristen Shaw is very clowny. Um, she has a lot of characters and she does a lot of physical acting. She has a lot of physical pieces. Um, yeah, so I consider her definitely that. Rory Scovel a little bit. 
Boris Goval kind of uh, inhabits characters and does a lot of physicalization. Um, I'd also say Kate Berlant, who's kind of a kind of like a a sister when it comes to performance style. Like she she's like a younger female uh kind of energetic sibling you know so <laughs> so like when you see her on stage there are elements that that have a familiarity you know i mean vice versa not just like oh, oh yeah that's like her like me it's more like like each other there's like awesome um kind of a place that we both so it's hard for me to see her because i'll absorb some of her stylings and then i might project that when i go on after her. so i was so i always try to i love watching her but i also try to just go to her gigs and that'd be the the robin williams effect yeah yeah i don't want that it's a terrible <laughs> feeling because you can feel it and it's a terrible feeling you're like oh this do you, is do what you, I do you just... sort of feel it after the fact or in the moment you're like holy shit or you, you just kind of like it's in the moment it's like, oh, this is that. How do I get out of here? How do I get higher? You know, I gotta get out of the style mode. <laughs> have you have you ever had have you ever had to acknowledge that on stage where you you're absorbing no. and performing and you're like, ah, oh, fuck this, I'm doing something else. Yeah, no, I mean I've definitely done that, but I would never like you know explain it to the audience or anything. Like that. <laughs> I mean, although that would be funny. <laughs> <laughs> All right, man. Well, thanks cool. for your time. Thank that was you, awesome. Man. Thank you so much. That was really fun. I'm uh, hitting the stop button. Do it. Take care. As I shut off my audio recording Connecticut I heard a little yippy dog in the background. Reggie exclaimed that he thought she might be home now. I asked who she is. He responded, this is Natasha Legero's house. And then it just clicked. Only three days prior, I was at the infamous comedy store where I had the privilege to see another amazing set from the hilarious Miss Legero. She had brought her little yippy dog on stage and talked about her fancy house and new hot tub. It was all connected. I had just interviewed one of my comedic heroes on a bed in the large hillside house of another comedic icon. Then I remembered how awesome life is. Cloudy is freedom. Cloudy is life. Cloudy is freedom. Cloudy is life. Make sure to check out Reggie's website in the post description. Hopefully you subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and our video series on YouTube. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Pinterest, Tumblr, Vine, Google+, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. Go to the website at afoolsidea.com and sign up to our newsletter. Check out the episodes of the documentary series and watch all the extra fun bits of clown goodness that we post on a regular basis. Until next time, thanks for listening to A Fool's Idea.